0: Yeah, you're 15 minutes late on that. All right. Good afternoon, everybody. Sorry to disrupt your conversations, but we've got a lot of ground to cover today. Um, If you remember, last week we started uh, in the book of Ruth. We just looked at the first five verses and gave a little bit of an overview of the book. What is the main theme? There are a couple of themes, but one that we will see throughout each chapter is the divine providence of God. Uh, what I told you, a pastor had said one time in describing the book of, book of Ruth. It's a a common life under an uncommon grace. Ruth has a very common life. She is a normal pagan little girl, <laughs> and we see all the twists and turns to her life, bringing her under the grace of God into the fold of the family of God. Uh, and we'll see. We'll take another step in that direction uh, today. Uh, we're going to begin where we left off last week and look very briefly at the rest of the ch- rest of chapter one, and then spend quite a bit of time in chapter two. So, if you would look at Ruth chapter two, that's what we're going to uh, I'm going to read from to begin. <coughs> Ruth chapter two, verses one through thirteen. Now, Naomi had a relative of her husband's, a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, Let me go to the field and glean, glean among the ears of grain after him, in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, Go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and said to the reapers, The Lord be with you. And they answered, The Lord bless you. Then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers, Whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, She is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, Please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came, and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. <clears throat> and Boaz said to Ruth, Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping, and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground, and said to him, Why have I found favor in your eyes, that you should take notice of me, since I am a foreigner? But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me, and how you left your father and mother in your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done. And a full reward be given you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that every bit of it, every word of it is true. We thank you that we can trust it. Thank you for the story of Ruth. And, Lord, we would find such similarities to our own stories of faith and our own walk of faith with you. There are so many times when we don't recognize your providence and your hand working, but it is there, and you are concerned with even the details of our life. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. (coughs) I heard Harry Reeder, uh, the pastor at Briarwood, say one time that every single Christian in the world is in one of three positions. They either just came out of a trial they're in the middle of a trial, or they're just about to go into a trial. <laughs> what an encouraging word, right? I'm like, great, a trial's coming soon if I'm not in one already. If Your experience has probably been, probably been that that is true. You either just got out of something, you're in the middle, or you're just about to go back into it. We mentioned last week that Naomi, kind of the main character at this point, she's had a very pitiful life. <laughs> she has fled her people and gone to Moab with her husband Limelech. Once she arrived there, her husband dies, and then shortly after that, her two sons die. And that's awful. Uh, Some of you have experienced pain similar to that. You understand what that means. She has had a horrible life to this point. But we see that the Lord is continuing to take care of her despite all those things. And he will continue to take care of even Naomi throughout the rest of this book. She shows us what it means to suffer. She shows us what it means to endure in the life of a Christian. Uh, She gives us a great testimony of enduring despite the the pain and trials of life. So in verse 6, our story continues. That's that's the background. Naomi and Ruth, they're now in, in Moab. Not Naomi's people, but it's Ruth's people. Okay, so Naomi's husband, Elimelech, has died and her two sons. Now they're figuring out what they're going to do. It says in verse 6 of chapter 1 that the famine is over and that food has returned. Bethlehem, known as the house of bread, bread has returned to the house of bread. That's good, okay? Famine, we said last week, is often tied to God's displeasure and his, uh, his judgment upon a people. The famine has been lifted. Naomi catches, uh, catches wind of this. And so, okay, I'm going to go back to my people. So the three women begin their journey back to Israel. On the way to Israel, Naomi begins to think better of this. I, I want to go back, I want to be back with my people, but can I really ask my two daughters-in-law to do the same thing? Because Ruth and Orpah are coming back with her. So from a worldly perspective, Naomi is giving her two daughters-in-law great advice. You don't need to come back with me. You need to stay with your people, with your friends, with your family. You can be protected. So she says, don't do this. Don't come with me. Don't face the same things that I've had to face down here. Stay, marry people, marry, uh, take husbands, make homes. This is what would be best for you. you know, it would be beneficial for Naomi if her daughters-in-law did come with her. Uh, but, and she didn't have to do this. She didn't have to look out for their best interest. You know, a, a believer's return to God can come in a variety of forms. Afflictions quicken the believer to prayer. Adversity drives us back to God. And this clearly seems to what, clearly seems to be what has happened with Naomi. The adversity of her life calls her to pray for her daughters-in-law. She sees God's hand in certain situations. She's still upset and hurt by the things that have happened, but she is, it seems her eyes have been opened to the providential hand of God in her life. In the midst of trials and hardship, she is drawing nearer to him, not further away. She's drawing closer. She's seeing more intimate details of what he's doing for her rather than just, I don't know what's going on. My life is in total chaos. You see, often we talk about the providence of God and we just think about eternal things. We think about an eternal destination. He's predestined me, we might say, unto salvation. And we just think about God providing for us in that way, in the big things. But he doesn't just foreordain the ends of our life. He foreordains the means to those ends. He's concerned with the decisions that you make each and every day in your life. He's in control of those. And Naomi is showing us this. Jonathan Edwards wrote uh, a treatise called A Faithful Narrative of Surprising Conversions. It's just several stories of, of interesting conversion stories. And here's one such story. It's a story of a little girl named Phoebe Bartlett. She was born in 1731. And at the age of four, she showed an unusually deep sense of faith in her life. Her parents noticed that she would pray five to six times a day, pleading with the Lord to give her salvation and to pardon her from her sins. And from that day forward, there was a clear and lasting change in her life. Later in her life, when she was in her 70s, she traveled to the town of West Hampton with her husband. And during those travels, she became very ill. There was a certain nurse named Justin Edwards, no relation to Jonathan, he was, and it was convert, converted under the testimony of her life. He saw her suffering under, under her illness, He saw her struggling, and he was converted as a result. And he said, as he saw this woman dying, here is a religion that I have not, but that I must have. Phoebe Bartlett died in 1805, and Justin Edwards became a pastor as a result of seeing her faith and later became the president of Andover Theological Seminary. This woman was not perfect, but she was faithful. And what impacted the people around her the most was how she was faithful in the midst of adversity. So what happens to you in adversity? I don't know if this whole God thing's for me. I don't know if this whole faith and walking with the Lord is what's right. It's meant to draw us near. We talked about this on Sunday. It's an invitation an adver- adversity in your life, and a trial, is an invitation by God to trust Him more and to draw nearer to Him. We just want to chalk up the good things in our life to God's provision, the bad things in our life to that was just, man, that was luck, that was chance that that happened. Naomi's life is showing us that that's just not true. Verses twelve and thirteen. Let me quickly finish the chapter one. Naomi pleads with them to turn back. Don't stay. Don't stay with me. Go back to your people. Orpah finally decides, okay, that's what I'm going to do. She returns back to her people, and she says, Naomi then says to Ruth, see, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. This wasn't just a practical decision for Orpah. It was a spiritual decision, quite literally. And if you remember what Orpah's name means, it means stiff-necked, which is kind of being played out in her life here. So because of this, Naomi implores Ruth to do the same, and then Ruth gives now her now famous response. Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. You shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. What an emphatic and passionate And compassionate response from Ruth, right? She said, Naomi, stop. Stop asking me to go back. I don't want to go back. Your people are my people. Your God is my God. I'm hitching my wagon to you, quite literally. And nothing other than death is going to part us and separate us. You see, Ruth was under no obligation to do this. There wasn't a cultural thing here that would have said a daughter-in-law ought to love her her mother-in-law in this way. She was doing this because she thought that it was right. She's declaring her love for her mother-in-law. So Ruth is doing the very thing that Naomi had done years before. She's going to a foreign land. She's going to the land of her arch enemies because the Moabites and Israelites didn't like each other. She's rebuking, she's denouncing her traditions, her customs, and her family and embracing everything in the context of being an Israelite, including their gods. Your gods will be my gods. It's, It's not just a practical decision. It's also a spiritual decision that she makes. Orpah returns to be with her own gods. Ruth now returns to take on the God of Israel. Don't miss what a radical thing this is for Ruth. She's not just moving across town. <laughs> she's renouncing everything that she's ever been and that she's ever known. And she makes a commitment to a mother, her mother-in-law that extends far past death. Let me read for you a, a, a very brief story. This comes from a commentary uh, by John Currit on the Book of Ruth. He tells the story of Thomas Scott. Thomas Scott was, a, was an 18th-century preacher, and in the, 19, in the excuse me, in the 1770s, Scott was in charge of a lot of parishes in and around, uh, or near London, but all involved with the Church of England. However, he was an unbeliever, even as a preacher in this church. He denied the Trinity, he ridiculed the belief that the event at Calvary was a substitution and covering for sin. He didn't believe in hell, he didn't believe in original sin, and he didn't believe in the coming judgment. He did not believe that a person needed to be born again or regenerated by the Holy Spirit. He was an uncaring pastor who had nothing to do with the people of his congregation. In fact, he even once told someone that the only reason he became a minister was was in order to make an easy way of living. One day, Scott began to hear rumblings in his parish that there was a pastor in a nearby town who was coming and preaching strange things to members of his congregation. So he slipped into the man's church one Sunday, and he couldn't believe the things that he heard. He found out who this person was and found out that this person had visited two of his parishioners on their deathbeds and encouraged them in their trials. He couldn't believe that this preacher would do something like this. However, he began a written correspondence with this man in order to test his own theology, and this man was John Newton. He refused to argue with Scott, but simply laid out the gospel to him, prayed for him, and assumed, assured him that one day he would come to agree with Newton and everything that he believed. And in 1777, when Thomas Scott was going through a time of great trial in his life, he knew of only one man that he could turn to, and that was John Newton. And by the end of the trial, Scott became converted, evangelical and Calvinistic in his theology, and ironically, when Newton left his pastorate in Olney to pastor a church in London, it was Thomas Scott who took his place at the former church. And he became a a champion preaching the truth of the gospel. One of the young men who often used to come and hear Thomas Scott once he had been converted was a young Baptist cobbler named William Carey. Carey, if you know is many, many considered him to be the father of modern missions. Oh, the mis- this is how Doctor Currit ends, ends the story. Oh, the mysterious providence of God and the salvation of sinners, and we rit- we witness we witness such sovereign events in the Book of Ruth. You see, what a great story! You see, this man who was a who was a sinner, he wasn't a, he wasn't a believer. He's preaching all these wrong things. Someone comes into his life like John Newton, and they don't like, well, uh, Scott doesn't like Newton. They're arguing over theology. He's converted. As a result, William Carey's converted under his preaching, and then he goes off and leads modern missions in the world. How many times in your life have you looked, in the midst of these things, you can't see the importance of the events, but you look back and say, wow, if that hadn't happened, then none of these things would have happened. If this hadn't happened, then how would the Lord have directed me elsewhere? Lauren, my wife and I, we have we've been married almost eight years, and in our seven and a half years, roughly, of marriage, we have moved. We have lived in six places and four cities. If you had have told me that when we first got married, I would, there's no way that is just not us. We don't want to have a life like that, moving all the time. You know, so many times in our life to this point, it's, it has felt and seemed like just a bumbling around an aimless, we can't get our act together, we can't, what is God doing? This is, this is so out of control and chaotic. I don't like this. Lord, please just plant us and settle us down. We, we, I look back on all those things and I see the, the lessons that he needed to teach us. I see the, the ways he's molded and shaped us. I see the reason we needed to be here and not there. It all begins to make sense. And it wasn't a bumbling around. It wasn't an aimless pursuit. Yes, there was some sin and some bad decisions mixed in all of that, of course, but the Lord used all of that to carry out his plan, and I'm sure there'll be a lot more of that for us. Hopefully not a lot of moves, but I'm sure there'll be a lot of what seems to be bumbling around, and I bet we all have the same testimony as well. Clearly some recognize this in their life and others don't. So Ruth and Naomi arrive back in Israel People are starting, is that Naomi? Is that the woman that we knew so many years ago? She says that she has changed her name from Naomi, which means sweet, to Mara, which means bitter. She's just proclaiming the way, y'all won't believe what's happened to me since I've been back. And she tells them what has been going on. The end of chapter 1 ends in a very interesting way. We see that it's the beginning of barley harvest. It seems like just a throwaway line, but it's hardly a throwaway line. They have come back at the perfect time. It's no coincidence they've come back at the beginning of the harvest. So when Ruth in here, in, in chapter 2, as we read, when she goes out into these fields, there's abundance of food for her to pick up and to have for her and Naomi. It's no mistake. You know, what really seems to happen to Naomi here at the end of this chapter is she seems to be brought to, the end, to her wit's end. <laughs> She's saddened. Life has really, as we call it, dealt her a bad hand, although we know it's not that. It's God's divine providence, but often he must do the same to us. Bring us to the end of ourselves, humble us by the things that he allows to happen to us so that we can then be used and mold and shaped by him. Chapter 2. We're introduced to a new character in this story, Boaz. We'll learn about him more and more as we go on. It says, Boaz is a man of exceptional character, a worthy man, I think is what the ESV says. This, this talks about his manliness, but also talks about his worthy character. And In verse 2, we see Ruth is going out and gleaning in the fields. Now, she's taking advantage of an of a Israelite law here. The Hebrew farmer was instructed not to pick over everything in his fields as he's harvesting. If some stuff kind of falls off to the side or you don't pick up all the grapes, it says leave it there so that the foreigner, the sojourner, the slave can come through and get these things for themselves. It was supposed to be left for the poor, the Lord providing for the poor. A gracious law from a gracious God. Ruth is doing this gleaning. Verse 4, who comes along? Well, it just so happens, right? (laughs) The day that Ruth is gleaning in the fields just happens to be the day that Boaz has come to check on his field. It just so happens that she chooses his field to be gleaning from that day. And so Boaz, he's asking, well, who's this woman? Who where is she from? What's her story? You know, is basically what he's asking his reapers, who does she belong to? Whose care is she under? And so the chief reaper looks at Boaz and says, "Well, she's the young Moabite woman. You know, the one who came back with Naomi from the from the country of Moab. It seems that her reputation's kind of gotten around. Oh, yeah, I've heard her story before." And so Boaz deals kindly with her as a result of that. Her her reputation is getting around. Everybody's falling in love with this woman based on her story, it seems. And she's boldly asked to glean in that field. You know, one would think that Ruth Ruth may have questioned her decision from time to time to go back to Naomi, but everything seems to be falling into place, right? She chooses the right field, she chooses the right person, and she's going to be loved and accepted by this man that she knew nothing of before and redeeming this line. Sometimes we just don't see what the Lord is doing. Um, I had a professor in seminary who often told this. (laughs) I find this story really funny. I hope you will too. Uh, He was preaching a sermon one day and as as he tells this story, he said, you know what? And I really felt like it was a good sermon. Sometimes I can just lay an egg and, and sometimes I really felt like I preached a good sermon. So this... This preacher was confessing that he really felt like he'd hit one out of the park with the sermon. And so a young man comes up to him after the sermon's over and says, Pastor, I think I've been converted this morning. I believe through this service the Lord has opened my eyes to my sin and and made me understand his grace. I want to talk to you about this. And so my my friend said, "Well, well, what was it? What part, assuming that it was something in the sermon that he had said that really, you know, really convicted him. He said, actually, it was the call to worship. That passage in Psalm was just so wonderful, and it, it led me to an understanding of my sin, which immediately just kind of humbled him, like, oh, okay, well, it, it's, not, it's not me anyway. It's the Holy Spirit. We just don't see what the Lord is doing, what seems to be insignificant things, the Lord is using in a mighty way in other people's lives. <clears throat> we see the great compassion now that Boaz has towards Ruth. He didn't owe her anything. He didn't have to do this for her, but he chooses to to love her and have compassion for her. He says, listen, my daughter, just basically in a term of endearment he gives her. Do not glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. And have I not charged the young men not to touch you? These young women are probably of Ruth's clan. He says, stick close to them. Don't do what the sojourners and the foreigners do. Do what my people do. You can have that stuff. And then Boaz declares that Ruth is going to be safe. Let's be honest here. Ruth is a sojourner. She has no rights. There's not a police force that's driving around to make sure nothing's going wrong. These men could have grabbed her and done whatever they wanted to her, and it wouldn't have been wrong. But Boaz sternly instructs them not to touch her. Boaz, excuse me, Ruth responds to Boaz in a way that's typical of this time. Why have I found favor in your eyes? She falls down at his feet. Why are you treating me so well? And he tells her again, it's because of the testimony of what you've done. Her character has impacted the community that she's in. It has, in a sense, exalted her place there because of the way that she's loved her mother-in-law. Boaz says that he she should be seeking the protection of Yahweh, dealing kindly with her because of what she's done. He pronounces blessings upon her, invites her to eat a meal, and then here at the end of verse twenty, or at the end of chapter two and verse twenty, is what I want us to spend a little bit on in closing. It's the first time that we're exposed to this word that we'll go in depth with next week, and it's the term goel or kinsman redeemer. Verse twenty, it says. The ma- Naomi is talking with Ruth. Ruth is kind of given a report on what happened that day. The man is close relative of ours, one of our redeemers. Hey, this idea and concept is completely lost on us in our culture today. The term redeem, of course, means to avenge or redeem or ransom. And there was a, there was a, a, a law back in Hebrew culture that laid out the things that a redeemer was supposed to do. He had four basic duties. Number one. A redeemer had the obligation to buy back his kin from bondage or slavery. If a Hebrew went into slavery, the next of kin was to buy him back from that. talks about it in Leviticus chapter 25. Number two, the redeemer has the duty to buy back land that one of his relatives has sold, Leviticus chapter 25. If a Hebrew goes into debt, may sell his land to pay off what he owes, the redeemer is required to buy that back for him. The number three, which is what is happening in our passage, if a female is a widow in the clan and has no male heirs, then the Redeemer has the responsibility to marry her. So if the, woman, the woman's hus- dead husband does not have any brothers, or if, he does, or if she has no sons that might carry on his name, then the next of kin is required by law to marry her so that her dead husband's name would go on. I hope that makes sense. We'll, I'll explain it more next week. That's also talked about in Deuteronomy chapter 25. And then lastly, a redeemer is to act as the avenger of blood on behalf of his relatives. Do you see how compassionate this is? This was actually a very loving law. And this is exactly what's going to happen for Naomi going forward. But this is the heart of the gospel anyway, isn't it? Redemption. A buying back. A purchasing of something that was lost. We were in perfect harmony and communion and fellowship with God in the Garden of Eden, and it all got ruined because of our sin. So there was a buying back that was necessary, a purchase. And the purchase price was someone's blood. We were the ones that committed the sins, and we were the ones that broke the relationship, so it should have been mankind's blood that was, that was asked of. And it was mankind's blood that paid it, but it was Christ. Christ is the one that bought us back, quite literally. The great story of Scripture is one of redemption. It's one, it's a love story, if you will. It's buying back something that was lost. Let me close with this story. There was once a little boy who who made this toy boat. He was so excited. He made it with with his own hands and from materials. And he was so excited it was finally finished, and he went out to to this little creek and he was going to sail sail the boat along with his string. He's pulling it. He's so excited. It was going along great, beautiful day. But at one point the wind started to pick up and he couldn't hold it any longer and the string broke and the, and the little boat goes sailing down the creek. He was so sad. He tried to run after it and was, was unable to get it. All afternoon he searched for the boat. Finally it was too dark and he went home very sad because he'd lost the thing that he had made. Well the next day he's walking through town. He he goes by a store, and he sees in a store window, it's, it's his boat. He knew it was his boat. It had the markings of what he had made. And he goes in and sees the store manager and says, Sir, that's my boat in the window. Can I have it back? The store owner says, I'm, I'm sorry. Someone brought that in this morning. If you want it, then you're going to have to pay the dollar that it costs. little boy ran home, and he opened up his piggy bank, saw that he had exactly one dollar. He gathers it, and he goes back to the store. When he reached the store, he rushed to the counter and says, here's the money for my boat. The little boy hugged his boat and says, now you're twice mine. First I made you, and now I bought you. If you ever think that you aren't worth much, if you think you're cheap, just remember what God thinks of you. You're his twice. You're his two times over. He made you quite literally. He, w- he uh, wove you together in your mother's womb. He had intentions for you. He saw you before the foundations of the world, knew what you were going to be, foreordained the very steps of your life, put all that together. You were his two times. Then he didn't lose you, but you sinned and the relationship was broken. You need to be reconciled. And so God came down literally in the form of Jesus Christ and bought you back again. You're his two times. Don't forget that you were his originally and then he saw saw that it needed to be fixed, and loved you enough to come back to redeem you again. The blood of Christ is what paid for us. It's what redeemed us. He didn't owe it to us. It wasn't required of him, but he did it because he loves us and he redeemed us. We'll talk more about that going forward, but don't miss. It's the providence of God, and also it's the redemption of us as his people. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for this lesson this morning, or this afternoon. We thank you for redemption. Lord, we thank you for sending your Son, Jesus Christ, to redeem us back. Redeem us from darkness and back into the light. Lord, that we would put our trust in you because of that, because of all that you've done for us. We would see your hand at work all the time. We would see how you were directing our steps, and we would trust you because of that. And it's in Christ's name we pray, amen.